It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. No, not really yet, is it? It's dismal, gray, raining most days. Maybe we'll have a white Christmas, maybe not. I don't know about you, I'm getting excited for the season. It is coming quickly. But it's also a little disheartening to me. There's so little Jesus in our Christmas in the American culture. So little Jesus. In fact, one particular Christmas carol has caught my attention the last couple of years. In the carol, Have yourself a merry little Christmas. I sometimes hear this line, Through the years, we'll all, we will all be together if the Lord allows. And then as though that is a great thing to celebrate, hang a shining star upon the highest bough. But if you're a lyricist like me, other times you know you hear this. Through the years, we all will be together if the fates allow. Until then, we'll just have to muddle through somehow. Now, I do resonate with the feeling that sometimes people feel like life is out of control, that you're hanging on, hoping for the best, and just trying to get through. But the theology of the Scripture tells us that God is in complete control. He is working not only all things out according to the counsel of his own good will, but at the same time, he is working all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Boy, I wish I could hear more Chris Rice on the radio singing one of the most theologically robust Christian songs, Christmas songs I've ever heard. He not only reflects the pain of this life, but then inserts the beauty and importance of Jesus coming into the world. Perhaps you know the song, Welcome to Our World. Tears are falling, hearts are breaking. How we need to hear from God. You've been promised, we've been waiting. Welcome, holy child. Hope that you don't mind our manger. How I wish we would have known but long-awaited holy stranger, make yourself at home. Bring your peace into our violence. Bid our hungry souls be fed. The word now breaking heaven's silence. Welcome to our world. Fragile finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorn. Tiny heart whose blood will save us unto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you. Breathe our air and walk our sod. Rob our sins and make us holy. Perfect Son of God, welcome to our world. If you don't know that song, it's uh, worth giving a listen. And so I hope today to, to bring around this Christmas assignment that I've been given from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, the account of Jesus' righteous parents or as I, in a moment of maybe uh, weird 
attempted creativity. What does the bulletin say? Jesus perfectly presented by pious parents. So we have this account now from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. These verses come near the beginning of Luke's gospel. It's written by Luke, a physician, to a man named Theophilus. The name Theophilus is from a Greek word. It means friend of God or loved by God. And the common understanding is that Theophilus was of high social standing. He was a friend of Luke. And in this gospel, Luke addresses Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus. This is a Roman title of respect. It indicates official importance. And Luke, in verse 4, I believe, expresses this to Theophilus, so that you may know, hear this, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. This gives us the idea that Theophilus is probably not a Jew, he's a Gentile, but Luke has studied with him about Jesus, about the way, about Christianity. Luke wants to prove to Theophilus that what he has learned about Jesus is in fact true. So Luke offers a series of stories and eyewitness accounts to bring veracity, clarity, and urgency to the story of Jesus Christ. These four verses this morning are part of a larger section that runs throughout all of chapter 2. So just for a second, allow me to summarize chapter 2 so that you can see what role this section, these four verses, play in the story of the gospel. At the beginning of chapter 2, there's a legal and governmental section. You know it well, probably, from hearing it uh, read many, many times. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And there's the story of Joseph and Mary getting to the right city, the city of David, from the town of Nazareth to Bethlehem, to be registered. And then Pastor Brian will teach next week. The next characters we find are the shepherds on the hill keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angels come and give testimony to the the gospel, to the Christ child. And then our story comes in and Joseph and Mary presented as righteous, law-keeping Jews precisely and carefully executing the rituals of the Old Testament on behalf of the Messiah. And then in the response to that, there are two characters who have served at the temple for a long time. Appreciate Doug speaking about them in his prayer. A man named Simeon, who had been, who is described as righteous and devout and had served in the temple for a long time testifies as well as a prophetess she's described a woman named Anna who was also advanced in years and then one final word of testimony we jump forward 11 and a half years ish in time and Jesus goes to the temple and has an encounter with the priest, and they marvel at his understanding of the Scripture. Look at Luke chapter 40. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 40, just for a moment. There is a summary statement here. 
that describes what's going on in Jesus' life after his encounter at the temple on the 40th day of his life until he turns 12. What does it say? And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is another big important theme that Luke is presenting to us while all of these people are presenting Jesus and testifying to him and saying, this is the child. There is a process getting to a spot where Jesus will soon speak for himself. We don't know a lot about Jesus as a young person. But we know verse 40 and verse 52. A similar verse summarizing the life of Jesus from the time he was 12 until he began his ministry when he turned 30. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, favor with God, favor with man. So those two bookends that Luke puts in there help us understand what was happening to Jesus as he expresses it to Theophilus and all of these people who are testifying to him. Okay. Enough summary there. Now getting to today. Our Christmas passage today shows us that Joseph and Mary were obedient, law-keeping Jews. Now, listen to me just for a second here. I, you gotta, uh, this is a tricky assignment. This story is about Joseph and Mary, but Joseph and Mary are not the heroes of the story. Correct? The Bible is about Jesus. And we are flawed. Jesus' parents were flawed. They were not perfect. This is not an Aesop's fable. Be like Joseph and Mary. Okay? Do you understand that? That's not what you should be seeking. Although they are held up as good examples for us. Just something for you to consider as we look forward to this. But Joseph and Mary are obedient, law-keeping Jews. Leviticus 12 prescribes certain rituals for Jews to complete after childbirth including circumcising male infants on the eighth day and purification rites performed for the mother 33 days after that in the temple. In addition, Exodus chapter 13 instructed Israelite parents to set aside the firstborn son to the Lord. This was very much came out of the Passover uh, where the death angel was killing the firstborn in Egypt and was releasing and delivering the children of Israel And at that time, with this emphasis on the firstborn, God instructed the Israelite parents to set apart the firstborn son to the Lord. After naming the child Jesus in accordance with the angel's instructions, the parents head to Jerusalem, about 11 miles, in order to fulfill their obligation and sacrifice, as we read here, the pair of birds that were prescribed in the law for poor people. And today what we're going to do is investigate why this was important for Joseph and Mary to fulfill these rituals on behalf of Jesus and what that means to us today. Why it was important for them to fulfill these rituals on behalf of Jesus and what does it mean for us today. So let's take a close look at the three things, the three ancient ceremonies or rituals that every Jewish boy had to undergo. Number one, circumcision. Every Jewish boy was circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This ceremony was so sacred that it could even be carried out on the Sabbath when the law forbid almost every other act that was not considered essential. And on that day, 
the boy received his name. Secondly, the redemption of the firstborn. As I said, according to the law of Exodus 13, every firstborn male of both human beings and of cattle was sacred to the Lord. So there was a ceremony called the redemption of the firstborn that is detailed for us in Numbers chapter 18. It is written down that for a sum of five shekels, a parent could, as it were, buy back or redeem their son from the Lord. If not, the child, as Hannah offered Samuel to the Lord, would be dedicated to the service of the Lord. But a parent could, for five shekels, buy back or redeem their firstborn son from that act of service. The sum had to be paid to the priests. It could not be paid sooner than 31 days after the birth of a child. And it could not be delayed very long after that. Number three, the purification after childbirth. When a woman had born a child, if it was a boy, she was unclean for 40 days. She could go about her household and her daily business, but she could not enter the temple or share in any religious ceremony. According to Leviticus 12, at the end of that time, she had to bring to the temple a lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon for a sin offering. That was somewhat of an expensive sacrifice. And so the law laid down that if she could not afford a lamb, she might bring another pigeon. The offering of two pigeons instead of the lamb and the pigeon was actually called the offering of the poor. This is the offering of the poor that Mary brought. Anecdotally, it does help us understand that it was an ordinary home that Jesus was born into. A home that didn't have a lot of luxuries. A home where the members of the family knew about the difficulties of making a living, the pressures of daily life. So those three pressures, those three very particular laid down, specific, exacting ceremonies or rituals of the Old Testament law were upon Mary and Joseph to execute on behalf of Jesus. Well, let's take a look at these things through the eyes now that if you're a note taker, I know I've given you a lot of stuff here, but really what I want to do is now take a look at this story and what I've shared with you by way of teaching through the eyes of Mary and Joseph for a minute. What did it mean to them, to Jesus, to Theophilus? What, what did it mean to them then? And then for a moment ask us, well, what does it mean to us today? All right, so some of this will feel a little redundant, but again, it's very technical, so I wanted to stay in it and look at it through the eyes of different people. So first, seeing this account through the eyes of Joseph and Mary, through the lens of historic Judaism. So we'll look at two things. We'll look at the circumcision and we'll look at the purification. Luke describes Jesus' circumcision in a single, very straightforward, very, very short sentence. On the eighth day, this is verse 21, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. It was important that Christ be circumcised. Circumcision was commanded in Genesis 17 for all males who would be a part of Abraham's household. Without it, 
Without circumcision, Jesus could not have identified with his people, even though he was of pure Hebrew blood. This was the mark of Judaism. But I think the greatest matter of significance at Jesus' circumcision was that he was named. He was named Jesus. It means Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. I have a little bit of understanding about this. Because I have eight children, and seven of them have name names. Caleb, Madison, Elijah. They have name names. But one of them has a name that means, that that has has a name that has meaning in our language. And her name is Hope. And Names in America don't carry the same connotation that they would have carried to people in a language where the name had meaning. I have to tell you that when we sing, all our hope is in you. When when someone says, I've lost hope, I turn around and look for my daughter. Does that that make sense? The name meant something. I'm not trying to say the other seven names don't have meaning. So my children who are watching this aren't insulted, right? (laughs) But I'm saying that literally and grammatically and in the language, more so in the Bible times, the name meant something. And every time you said the name there was a temptation or an opportunity for a double meaning. The reference to the person in front of you and the reference to the meaning of the word. Jesus was named God is Salvation. This is essential to understanding the incarnation. And as I said, there's no Christ in Jesus. There's no Christ in Christmas these days, and the average person on the street has no idea what Jesus means, though they use his name, don't they? For better or for worse, they use his name. But for those of us who know him, the name is both a sweet claim on our behalf and a promise on his behalf. And that is why it is so often on our lips. There are great songs like Jesus, O Sweet the Name. Name above all names. The origin of the name reveals something that makes it even more precious. Jesus in the Greek is the Hebrew word Joshua. The rendering of Joshua. The name of the great man who succeeded Moses and led Israel into the promised land. Originally, Joshua's name wasn't Joshua. It was Hoshia, which means salvation. But because of his faith and his leadership in believing that the promised land could be conquered, Numbers chapter 13 records for us, Moses gave Hoshua, the son of Nun, the name Joshua. As we know, he became Israel's greatest general. 
And so Joshua, or Jesus, means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. It suggests the need for deliverance. It connotes deliverance itself. It carries the idea of being delivered by great heroic action. And for us, that's from the bondage of sin. This Christmas reference, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The name Jesus shouts to the world the heroics of not only the incarnation, meaning Jesus in the flesh, but also the cross, the great deliverer. Joseph and Mary had both been told separately by an angel to name him Jesus. I thought for a moment in my study today, how, how, would I, do I like that? Do I not? Wasn't it a great joy to name your children? Did you agonize over it? Baby books and everything? Were they ever tempted for a moment? Well, maybe we shouldn't, you know. I, I always thought we'd do a family name, you know. Uh, I, 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 the text says nothing about that. But from our standpoint, thinking about that, the angel said to Joseph, listen, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name God is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. Boy, that rings differently, doesn't it? You will give him the name God is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. Gabriel's announcement to Mary was similar. You shall be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name God is salvation. Jesus. When the time came for the circumcision, and Joseph the father names his child, and Joseph utters the divinely prescribed name. I don't know. The Bible tells us nothing, but I I know if I were there, the sense of the moment would overwhelm me. This child, Joseph says, shall be called God is salvation. Jesus. I wonder how often they told that story. This child, our baby, is salvation. That's a great birth story. Jesus is our deliverance. If that's not part of your mindset as you approach Christmas, perhaps you haven't come to know Jesus. John Newton, the slave trader who was redeemed, uh, wrote so well in the hymn, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. And while it's great to celebrate the birth of Jesus, remember, friends, it is not the birth that saves us. If we were theologically what we would call incarnationalists, that leads its way to some kind of uniform salvation through which faith is not a requirement. Jesus' coming into the world did not redeem us. It was necessary. It had to happen properly, as we're describing this morning. But it was the cross. I love the song, Now Why This Fear? It helps us. Now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for us? And won't the righteous judge of men, will He condemn me for my debt of sin that's canceled at the cross? Rhetorically, no. Jesus, all my trust is in Your blood. 
Jesus, all my hope is in you. You've rescued us through your great love. Beautiful song goes on. Complete atonement you have made and by your death have fully paid the debt your people owed. No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by your saving grace and sprinkled with your blood. Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me. His name is Jesus. God is salvation. Be still, my soul, and know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have brought you liberty. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God. Jesus sets you free. Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. How sweet the sound of saving grace. Christ died for me. The naming of Jesus is a beautiful mark of the incarnation, a wonderful thought of Christmas, and an endearing thought to our hearts. And one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God's given him a name that rises above every name. Following the circumcision and naming of Jesus, we, we find these rites of purification. And the couple presenting their baby in the temple, which took place about a month later, they tell us a little bit more about the kind of people to who Jesus was born. So we'll spend a moment thinking about the purification through the eyes of Joseph and Mary. So the poverty of Jesus' parents is implied for us strongly here. Consider the hum, humble offering they made for Mary's purification and obedience to the law. The three verses read, When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. That's a reference to the redemption offering. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That's the purification offering for, for Mary. Two different things there. Going to focus in on the second for sake of time. That they offered a poor woman's offering is clear from Leviticus 12. If possible, it would be a lamb and a pigeon or dove. However, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she is to bring two doves or two pigeons. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Again, the text says nothing, but if I'm Joseph and this is the Messiah, I wish I had a lamb. <laughs> it seems like the right thing to do, right? to offer the fuller sacrifice, not the... God did not provide for that. So here we see again that Christianity began and always begins with the spirit of poverty, of need, of spiritual awareness of our own 
inadequacy. This was the refrain of Jesus' life. The chapter before, Doug read for us also, in Mary's song, she said that God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The angel's revelation to the shepherds out in the hillsides in the middle of nowhere rather than to the high and mighty of Israel speaks of this as well. Jesus laying in an animal feeding trough echoes the refrain. But that's okay. The psalmist wrote, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And Jesus would at the beginning of his ministry remind us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Friends, listen, God did not and does not come to people who are self-sufficient, who think they have it all together, who in some way demonstrate self-righteousness. This is the truth that we must remind ourselves again and again and again. Followers of Jesus, people who claim to be Christians, wrongly understood, give some people a false sense of personal spiritual self-righteousness. Even we who are followers of Jesus, born again, can wrongly turn spiritual growth into prideful self-sufficiency, a sense that we have arrived in some fashion and are now taking care of ourselves. We must continually guard against this within ourselves. Friends, the only sufficiency, the only adequacy, the only true blessings that we have come from Christ. So important. Mary, the mother of Jesus, still had to go through these purifications, these humbling processes that remind us that we are all sinners. All in need of a Savior. But it's so beautiful, isn't it? Because as Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. And we are watching this play out this morning. Well, let's transition here. Time is running quickly. Let's, let's kind of think about it from our perspective, can we? We've looked at it through. Hopefully it hasn't been too boring. The, the you know, Old Testament rituals and sacrifices through the eyes of the people who are living them. But what about us today? Can I give a quick word to people who are raising children here and grandparents who are helping? Joseph and Mary are a great example for us. I do not want to be legalistic. I, I'm not trying to. This is more of a, a thought of your heart than any specific thing. Can you feel the weight an exacting nature of these. When I was giving it to you, you were like, circumcision, naming, redeeming, purifying. Oh my gosh, get on to something fun, Trey. Okay, but I did it on purpose to bring it up now. Could you feel the weight of it? Could you, were you like annoyed by it? 
Joseph and Mary took great pains to follow the law of God. Whether it was hard or easy, embarrassing or not, they would have loved to bring a lamb. They probably only brought two, they brought two pigeons. They probably would have liked to celebrated it better. But the Bible puts them in the line of the government and the genealogy and the shepherds and Simeon and Anna and whoever these priests were in the temple when Jesus was 12 that he amazed. And alongside of those people, he put Joseph and Mary as credible witnesses who followed the law of God, raising kids, trying to show them the way. Don't grow weary in doing well if you're a parent. It's worth it. It's important. God cares. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he grows old, he will not depart from it, is a general principle. Be very careful. In, in, in the book of Ephesians, we're told that fathers, we are not to provoke our children to wrath, but we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It took me a while before I figured this out, but of the Lord, I just kept, I, I left that alone. Bring them up with discipline. Okay, I got that. And instruction. Sure, I can tell them all kinds of things, like how to throw a curveball. It's not my discipline, it's God's, the discipline of the Lord. It's not my instruction, it's the instruction of the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so to whatever extent and, and, and care you can, I encourage you, for the sake of eternal redemption and bringing example out of this text, Boy, Joseph and Mary are really good examples of people who tried to do it right, it seems. And Mary and Joseph are pictured that way. And then secondly, just a quick word to everybody. Are you a faithful testimony that Luke could have appealed to? If you lived at that time, would you have been capable of being cited in these accounts to bring veracity, clarity, urgency to the message of Jesus Christ. Remember the list. Luke appealed to Mary and Joseph. Luke appeared, appealed to a genealogy in chapter 1 and then the census data in chapter 2. The shepherds on the hillside, Simeon and Anna, even the baby Jesus, the 12-year-old Jesus, and the growing up Jesus, who is growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. To borrow language from another gospel, they let their lives shine before men so that others could see their good deeds and give glory to their Father who is in heaven. Are you so dedicated to living an exacting life of following Jesus that your life could be used by God now, again, he can use anyone, any way. I get that. But I think this is an appropriate way. I'm going to invite the praise team to uh, return to the platform as, we, uh, as I finish up here and we, uh, we'll have a final song and a benediction. Well, they got it all done. Circumcision, naming. 33 days later, they come to the temple. Purification rites. 
redemption, pigeons, sacrifice. I thought since we don't have this in our sermon series, I could go a little out of my text. Because the response I think we're supposed to get from this is the response that Luke gives us. You still have your Bibles open, turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, what we just read about, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have, that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that your thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. John MacArthur has a book, um, God in the Manger, a Christmas book. And this little story is in there. Years ago I read about a man who took a friend on a tour to Paris. They went to the Louvre and looked at all the great paintings there. That night they went to a concert hall and heard a wonderful symphony. At the end of the evening, the man asked his friend, well, what do you think? And the friend replied, well, I wasn't that impressed. In response, the man told his friend, if it's any consolation to you, the museum and the arts were not on trial, and neither was the symphony. You were on trial. History has already determined the greatness of these works of arts and of all this music. All that your attitude revealed is the smallness of your own appreciation. Friends, in the same way, Jesus Christ is not on trial. Every soul is. Simeon declared, this child is a sign which will be spoken against that. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. When God prompted Jesus to begin his ministry, many people rallied against him. That opposition simply revealed the wickedness of people's hearts. Simeon's testimony to Christ had far-reaching implications. Salvation had come. Simeon could die in peace. Peace, his task, the brief and contained, though brief and contained in a small segment of Scripture, boy, it's heavy, isn't it? It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Simeon gave a powerful affirmation to the truth that the infant Jesus was the promised Christ. He is who he said he was. May we be as bold as Simeon to declare it and think of it that way, that the people who are against Christ are outside the truth. God, give us boldness to declare it. Father, may your word go deep, deep, deep into our hearts, grow, and produce a harvest of righteousness that would please you and help others. In Jesus' name, amen.